Now, may we please continue together our survey of the book of Romans, turning again to the third chapter of Romans. Beginning at verse 21, we read to the end of the chapter. Last time we surveyed these verses and attempted to follow the logic of Paul the Apostle in this passage. Tonight we're going to look at three words of importance a little more closely, and the next time we're going to take one of these words and look at it, Lord willing, even more closely still. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we open your word, it is the greatest privilege that we can have to study your word and to know its content and to see Christ Jesus, our Lord, on the page of Holy Scripture. And we ask that the Holy Spirit will now show us Jesus. We pray that nothing would obscure him, that whatever temptation, whatever sin may be in our lives, that the Holy Spirit will deal with those things. We pray that you would remove all concerns about other issues, that our minds and hearts may be focused upon Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 3, pardon me, beginning with verse 21. This is the word of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, people of God, throughout the history of the church, there have been times when the truth of our acceptance with God on the basis of the imputed righteousness of Christ alone has been obscured. This has kept the gospel from the masses and assurance of faith from true believers. The Reformers' battle with Roman Catholicism was largely about this great matter of justification and assurance of faith. Rome's Council of Trent codified the Roman Catholic view and actually anathematizes, I mean, this is right there in the document, anathematizes all who teach justification by grace through faith alone. And this is still the official position of Roman Catholicism to this day. N.T. Wright, whom I mentioned from time to time, says that the Reformers did not understand Paul on this great matter of justification, and he wants to set us right. 
He takes a result of justification, which is membership in the covenant community, and he makes that justification itself and completely obscures what Paul teaches on the matter of justification. For N.T. Wright, there can be no such thing as the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, I know this from my firsthand reading of Wright. But what do we expect? This is the standing or falling doctrine of the church. And we can expect that it will come under attack again and again and again until Christ comes again because it is the very core of the gospel message. Sometimes that opposition will sound very sophisticated and winsome. Sometimes it will not. But let's be plain about what Paul is after here. He speaks of sin, guilt, and wrath. You'll recall how he concluded chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 by saying, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the great question that Paul the Apostle is addressing is, given that fact, that we are fallen, that we are sinners, that all have sinned, and have come short of God's glory, how can God be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus? How is it possible that he can save sinners and redeem us from our sins? How can he withhold his wrath from us and fail to show us the damnability that belongs to us by sending us to hell? Well, then we have this great turn, you see. There in verse 21 with these words, but now, but now, something is different. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And there in verse 21, we have the turning point, this dramatic turning point on the order of a new age. Everything is different because of this this great thing that he has done through sending his own son into the world. So the flow of the argument in these verses is essentially this, and this is what we looked at last time in some detail. The flow of the argument is God has indeed provided acceptance. He has indeed provided righteousness that is a perfect record received solely by faith, altogether by grace, through the redeeming blood of the cross in a way that is consistent with His own character, The judge submitted himself to be judged in our place, which gives all the glory of God to God. Now that summarizes what Paul is after in these verses. What I want to do now is to focus on three words. Often when I come to this text, these words jump out at me, and I think it's important that we focus upon them. Three words that also will help us to get a better grip on what Paul the Apostle is teaching us here. The first word is the word redemption, as we read it in verse 24 when he says, We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And so the first word that I want to bring to our attention is this great word redemption in verse 24. He mentions here that it's all of grace, God's saving kindness despite ourselves, that is shown to us by redemption. Jesus did not come to tell us that we are saved, as some liberal theologians would teach. He actually came to save us. He came to redeem us. 
Now, what is that redemption? It is the purchase of release by the payment of a price. Ransom, payment, substitution, buying back. These are the words that should come to mind when you hear the word redemption. This involves the setting free of those now redeemed. Redemption is securing of our release by the payment of a price, by the payment of a ransom. And this purchase, he says, is by blood. He goes on to say in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so blood is connected to propitiation, the price paid for our ransom. Now there are three categories or aspects of redemption. First of all, redemption is from the slavery of sin. We are enslaved to sin and redemption frees us from that slavery. It brings to bear the price to redeem, which is blood, which means substitution. Christ actually stood in the place of others. He filled the place of his people so that they would not have to suffer in hell for their sin. And then thirdly, to be set free from the old dominion and master to a new dominion and master. In redemption then, sinners are seen as slaves in chains. There we are on the block. We are perhaps uh, as a slave would have been in Delos or in Ephesus in days gone by. We are about to be sold and someone pays the price and then sets the slave free. Christ has paid the price and set us free. What is the price? It is blood. What does this mean? It means the taking of the penalty due to the sinner in the sinner's place. Substitution, of course, is the great theme that we find here, and it's everywhere in Paul, but not only in Paul, throughout the Bible. And once again, it is this great theme of substitutionary atonement that is under attack. One would have thought that evangelical churches, after the great modernist fundamentalist controversy of the 1920s and 30s, when substitutionary atonement and every cardinal doctrine was under attack, you would have thought that evangelical churches would have learned our lesson. But I don't simply mean in thoroughly liberal churches, but in many churches now claiming to be evangelical, substitutionary atonement is under attack. Theories of atonement are in vogue that deny the work of Christ was substitutionary. But this is crucial, and it is indispensable. There is no Christianity without substitutionary atonement. There simply isn't, and there can be no justification, no acceptance with God, except as Christ has substituted himself on a cross to redeem us from our awful sins. So this is crucial. Ephesians 1.7, he has redeemed us through blood. Hebrews 9.15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Mark 10, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. You see then, Christian, the Lord Jesus placed himself under your liabilities. He took your penalty. He paid the price that you and I owed before the law of God. Now, is this clear to you? Uh, this is absolutely fundamental. Is this clear to you? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. 
Now, what did Christ's redemption accomplish for his people? Well, these three things. Complete deliverance from the penalty of sin. So we read in verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And the constant emphasis here is our justification that is the result whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In Galatians 3.13, you have the classic text on this, when the Apostle Paul says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Deliverance from the bondage of sin also is the result of redemption. Redemption is by payment of a ransom and presupposes that we were previously possessed by another master, and we were. We were possessed by the devil. We were in the kingdom of darkness rather than possessed by the Redeemer and under the magisterium of the kingdom of light. But we are now free from that other master. And that is why Paul, in the context of sexual sin in Corinth, can appeal to the fact you were bought with a price. Paul the Apostle says you can't live that way anymore because you've been purchased. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to Jesus. You're purchased with blood. And so deliverance from the bondage of sin is the great presupposition of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.20. He bought us. We are free from debt. Why then, says Paul, as he argues this point in the sixth chapter of Romans, why submit yourself to an old master? This is very powerful in Christian living to understand that I don't belong to myself. I have been purchased from that old master, and so I'm completely inconsistent with what it means to be a Christian when I give myself over to that old master. Thomas Watson put it this way, whenever God pardons sin, he subdues it. Then is the condemning power of sin taken away, when the commanding power of it is taken away. If a malefactor be in prison, how shall he know that his prince hath pardoned him? If a jailer come and knock off his chains and fetters, and let him out of prison, then he may know that he is pardoned. So if we walk at liberty in the ways of God, this is a blessed sign he has pardoned us." And, of course, the third aspect of this redemption is that at the return of Christ, there will be complete and utter deliverance, even from the presence of sin. And I'm sure that every true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ knows whereof I speak when we say the great longing of every believer's heart. And believe me, as you grow in grace, that desire becomes more and more strong. The great thing about heaven, the great thing about the return of Christ is that I'm not going to sin anymore. And that's because Jesus bought me. That's because Jesus purchased me. And our sanctification, our growth in grace is progressive. Yes, we are accepted once for all. We're justified on the basis of the imputed righteousness of Christ. But our sanctification is progressive. But we long for and look forward to that day in which we won't sin. We simply will not sin anymore. That is the fruit of the blood of the Lamb. Second word, we've seen redemption. The second word is this word propitiation in verse 25, and we say a few things about it tonight. We're going to look at it in more depth, I hope, in the near future. In verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. 
Now, some have called this verse, verse 25, the Acropolis of the Bible and of the Christian faith, and I like that description. Paul, remember, is answering the question, what happened when Jesus died on the cross? Uh, The problem it addresses is the problem of God's wrath. God is wrathful against sin. We are deserving of that wrath. How, therefore, can we be saved? The answer is that we are redeemed by Christ. The payment price is blood, and through that blood, the wrath of God is satisfied. That's what propitiation means, the satisfaction of God's wrath, the removal of wrath by the payment of a price. Now, this is denied by many who would polarize wrath and love. I challenge you to take the book of Romans. Perhaps you can do it this week. Read the book and see how many times you see the Apostle Paul referencing wrath. I can tell you how many, but I'll see what your count is. He mentions wrath rather constantly throughout the book. You'll remember in the first chapter in verse 18, as he was unpacking for us the depravity of man and its deserved uh, penalty, that he says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There it is, the wrath of God, right in the first chapter in verse 18. And then we read also in Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so those theologians, um, again, notice my quotation marks, uh, those theologians who would say it's either wrath or love, you just need to read the book of Romans in which Paul says it's wrath and love. It's God providing for the removal of his wrath by his own love in sending his son to us. Now, this wrath of God is not capricious. It is the settled attitude of God's character against sin, which is contrary to his nature. God hates sin. He must have wrath against sin. That's simply how it is. Now, consider two things. First of all, notice in this verse 25 that God put forward the Lord Jesus as a propitiation, whom God put forward or God presented him. It could be translated. So it's not a question of winning the Father over. Um, This would be a total misrepresentation of of the facts. Jesus on the cross is not winning over a reluctant Father. God met the sinner's need under wrath from the depths of his own love and sovereign mercy by providing Jesus Christ as propitiation for our sins. Imagine it. We sinned against him. He provides for us his own son for the removal of that wrath. That's an amazing truth. Some depth dimension to this, of course, is that the word hilasterion is the word used here for propitiation. That's the term that is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for the word mercy seat. So Jesus is set forth, if you will, as our mercy seat. You remember that, don't you? The high priest once per year took blood into the Holy of Holies from the sacrifices, and then he sprinkled it on and before the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the Israelites. The mercy seat, gold covering on the top of the ark, which had uh, the manna and Aaron's rod and the tables of the law within. And you'll recall those great cherubim uh, of beaten gold that faced one another on the top of the mercy seat, which represents, of course, the throne of God. God looking down 
And there would have been the shroud of the incense in the most holy place as atonement was made. But now God is not hidden behind a cloud of incense. His love is plainly manifest in the cross for all to see. As Paul says in Galatians 3.1, he has placarded before our eyes as crucified so that we can see clearly the gospel message. Now, years ago when I was a boy, I read uh, the Puritan theologian John Owen, and I was struck with, and actually wrote it down when I was a young man, the four essential elements in a propitiation. And here they are. First, an offense to be taken away. Secondly, a person offended who needs to be pacified. Thirdly, an offending person, a person guilty of the offense. And fourthly, a sacrifice or some other means for making atonement for the offense. Now, this is the remarkable truth of it all, that God is the offended party, and yet God takes the offense for us. Now, I've used that illustration before, but it bears repeating. Our one who stands in the midst of an already scorched earth, when the fire comes, the fire simply goes around the scorched earth. That's what propitiation has done for us. The wrath of God that is surely coming, indeed already manifest in this world, that wrath of God will not scorch one hair on the head of any believer in Jesus because we stand at the foot of the cross, which is scorched ground. Because atonement has been made, because the propitiatory sacrifice has already borne the awful wrath of Almighty God. Because He was scorched in our place. We now stand in that place so that when the wrath of God comes, when Jesus returns in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel, not one, not one hair will be singed because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He, he makes it white as snow. Third word is the word blood. <clears throat> In verse 25 again, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now why blood specifically? Why does he not simply say death? Well, not only here, but it's a consistent emphasis in the New Testament that the death of Christ is by the shedding of blood. Now, there are many reasons for this. I mention only a few. In the Old Testament, the life of the flesh is in the blood, we are told in Leviticus, which signifies life given up completely in death. The sacrifice must be drained of blood. And then his life is given. The life of the flesh, the nefesh, is given. Also in Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul, nefesh, his life, makes an offering for guilt. One writer notes, blood of Christ is like cross, only another clearer expression for the death of Christ in its salvation meaning. Well, yes, and it underscores again for us the substitutionary nature of the atonement. The text says blood rather than death, in part because it's pointing to the Old Testament sacrifice. It says blood to be clear about what Christ did. 
that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And how did He do that? By the shedding of His blood. So when we come to the communion table this Wednesday in Vespers or um, in a couple of weeks on a Sunday morning, and the minister speaks of this cup, the new covenant in his blood, as we cite 1 Corinthians 11. If you are one who is in the new covenant, it is because of Christ's propitiatory, sacrificial, substitutionary death. It is because of the propitiatory sacrifice. It is because of the shed blood in the place of sinners like us. And if you can hear this and it's not profound to you, neither is something wrong with us. That we can hear these things and they become commonplace, this should transform everything. How I view God, how I view my acceptance, how I view assurance of faith, how I view relationships, how I view my home, how I view the church, it is profound that Christ has done this for sinners. And so our justification, our acceptance with God is founded on this reality And I ask you again, are you clear about these things? Do you understand these profound and wonderful truths? This standing or falling doctrine of the church, the standing or falling doctrine of the soul, that your acceptance is only through Jesus' blood, through His righteousness, that our acceptance with God is only through His substitutionary atonement. James Denny was a 19th century Scottish theologian who was not always right on everything. As a matter of fact, I think he was very wrong on many things. But he said some good things, and he was right about this. He says, there can be no gospel unless there is such a thing as a righteousness of God for the ungodly. But just as little can there be any gospel unless the integrity of God's character be maintained Paul felt that the sin of the world made a difference to God. Did you hear that? Paul felt that the sin of the world made a difference to God. It was a sin against his righteousness, and his righteousness had to be vindicated against it. He could not ignore it. Now, that's totally different than the way our culture views sin, however they may define it if they do at all. But if you ever see that your soul has sinned, against God in His holiness, then you know you have a wrath problem to deal with and that you can't remove that wrath and that you are helpless and you are hopeless because you cannot do it. So how is that wrath problem answered? Well, the only place on which you can place your feet in view of God's holiness, the only ground of acceptance is right here whom God put forward as a propitiation by faith in His blood. In the words of the old hymn, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And oh, how this establishes us, how this is the ground of our assured acceptance with God, so that on our deathbed, You know, I've thought about that an awful lot Uh, lately. You may think this is silly of me, but I just haven't felt well, all right? Uh, When I don't feel well, I think about death a lot. (laughs) I do. 
you know, uh, it's not morbid. It's really a good thing. I think about the fact that any time God could take me, I'm really in his hands. Um, I don't look forward to the process, if there is a process, but I do look forward to the result. How can a person look at death and look forward to the result? How? How can it be? Well, on our deathbed, our works will not do. Only Jesus' work will do. There can be no mixture of human merit whatsoever. When I think of this text, I think of a statement I saw somewhere, a Roman Catholic said to a Protestant, Our doctrine is the best to live in, but yours is the best to die in. Of course, our doctrine is the best to live in because he's an antinomian. He wants to sin and to go to his confessional. No, no. Ours is the best to die in, but it's also the best to live in. I want to live in that doctrine that is the best to die in, don't you? George Smeaton, if you ever are in an old bookshop and you find books by George Smeaton, snap them up, all right? Great old Scottish divine. Smeaton said, Christ is our meritorious redemption, our infinite ransom in the objective sense. That he will continue to be so while his living person endures. There the judge beholds the church's redemption. And every time he looks on the person of Christ, he sees our eternal ransom. Now that's the gospel. And that's what Paul means by these great words. Redemption, propitiation, and blood. And God's people said, Amen.